What if I told you that a storm is coming and this storm would be more disastrous than anything the world has ever faced before? What would you do with that information? Some people may prepare. Other people may think that's fake news. Other people may think, well, that would never happen to me. That only happens to others. Avoiding the confrontation. It's kind of similar to what could have happened in a very famous Bible story, as in the days of Noah, where people heard about the coming storm that would sweep across the earth. Yet they cried out, this is fake news. Noah, this would never happen because it's never rained a day on this earth. Why would that change? Who do you think you are, Noah? It could also even if it was that Noah was a person who had a certain idea of who God was, a certain expectation of God, that God would never allow something to happen like that. Even after hearing about it, Noah might have been like, God, that would never happen to me or God, that's not something you would really ever do. And and thereby Noah would not ever build the ark. You see, my point is simply that what we do with information has got a lot to do with how we perceive God, what our expectations are of what we call eschatology, the study of the end times. If we believe the character of God is one that would never allow certain tribulations to occur, even to us, and we are wrong, that may have dark consequences for us because we need to be able to prepare. And if we're if our expectations of eschatology of what is supposed to happen in the future are way off, we would not prepare emotionally for what would come on the earth, nor spiritually. Because, brothers and sisters, if what the Bible says is true and the coming tribulations on this earth will be more than the world has had before and will have ever again, then we would need to be prepared on multiple levels. So this is why the study of the end times is important. And this is why we are going to take an in-depth look in this video at what is well known as the rapture, that event of where the Messiah comes to gather up his people to take them from the earth. We need to understand what is the timeline look like for when the rapture occurs? Does it occur before or after a tribulation? Growing up still in my childhood, I remember one night rounding up around the television and watching a Hollywood movie called Left Behind.
of you I know are familiar with it. It recounts the various end times events that the Bible apparently taught. And we were so amazed seeing it because up to that point, we weren't really well versed in eschatology or the end time events, especially as children. And I remember that our church where we went did not really teach on anything regarding the book of Revelation or Matthew 24 or anything in time related. It was very efficiently skipped over. And the consequence of that was that years later, I realized that most of what I believe regarding what the end times are supposed to look like and what the Bible teaches about it was derived from what I saw in a Hollywood movie. Entertainment. But was that entertainment true? Was it accurately recounting what scripture teaches? Because most of America believes theology in a similar way that I did, based off what a Hollywood movie taught when we speak about this thing called the rapture. In this teaching, we're going to see what the Bible really teaches. And unlike many other teachings like that are about this topic, we're not going to start with a timeline on the screen and me telling you how things are going to be. Instead, we're going to start with a blank slate, a blank timeline, just a line with nothing on it. And we're going to allow scripture and scripture alone to fill in the events that are to go on this timeline in the order they ought to be in. So the deal is for us to be able to do this, I ask that you come into this teaching. Let's agree that we will go and put our biases our or what we have learned before, whether it's from a Hollywood movie or maybe it's from church, which is great. But let's put everything aside and let's start with a blank slate and let's see what scripture says about these topics. And on that note, I want to say that, yes, there are many different opinions regarding, you know, the end times and what that looks like. So this is certainly not an issue worth dividing over. That's it's not an issue worth splitting your church over. Certainly not. It's not an issue uh, where we call into question other people's salvation at all. This is an issue that we have to approach with humility and love. And of course, debating and talking about these things is important and encouraged. But we must do so in love and without causing division. And so in this teaching, I am going to present to you what I see the scriptures simply and plainly teach. In fact, you will find that I don't speak as much as I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself. And for that reason, this teaching is going to be more lengthy. 
So, but please stick with me because while this is not going to be a fast food teaching, this is going to be a comprehensive one that will allow you to defend what you believe regarding this very important thing, especially in these times of distress that the world has found itself in. This is not a complex topic, um, unlike what many people may think. I remember when I was a young believer looking at the, uh, the topic of end times and eschatology, the complexities, especially with regard to something like the rapture, seemed to be great. But what I found after self-study and what you will find is that the only reason that these things have become so complex is because of how many different opinions there are surrounding them. And often these opinions of men are formulated because we try and make scripture say what we want to happen. If we don't like this or that idea, we will try and find a way and we will find a way for scripture to back it up. Whether that is what scripture is naturally telling us is another thing. And so when we I'm saying this because when we do this study, we must let a natural reading of the scripture teach us. If we're going to start trying to go here and there, up and down, left and right, crazy, trying to make scripture say something, that's when we are on a different road, a road that gets very complex and confusing. But I want to submit to you that our Messiah wrote so a child can understand it, a child. And so when we read what he says, we will understand what he says. If we are willing to lay our beliefs and hopes of what he will say aside for the truth. Will you join me as we do that? So with regards to what the rapture is and when the rapture is, there are two big viewpoints. The first is the pre-tribulation rapture viewpoint, which is the belief that you will be raptured up as a believing Christian before any tr great tribulation occurs. And then you have another rapture occurring after the tribulation for typically believed the Jewish people. That is the pre-tribulation viewpoint. The post-tribulation viewpoint is the viewpoint that there is no rapture for believers before the great tribulation begins, but that there is only a rapture, one rapture at the at the end of the great tribulation, but before the wrath of God. Both viewpoints believe that believers will be saved from the wrath of God. The, only, the biggest difference is the one believes there would be two raptures, even arguably two comings of Christ. And the other believes there will be only one rapture with the second coming before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. But when we say the word rapture, there's oftentimes a connotation that goes with it that it is always used in terms of the pre-tribulation rapture. 
However, the word rapture simply comes from a Latin word, and it means to be taken up, to be gathered up, to be snatched from the earth, if you will. Um, and so that word, when we say in this teaching the word rapture, we're just using it in relation to when the Messiah gathers his people up from the earth into the heavens. So what evidence do we need to satisfy each of these viewpoints? You see, if we are to believe that the pre-tribulation rapture is the truth and what the Bible teaches, we need to find that a natural reading of the scripture shows us clearly that there is a rapture event that happens before the great tribulation, as well as another rapture event that occurs at the second coming of Christ when he comes down with the blowing of trumpets. If we are looking for evidence for the post-tribulation rapture, all that we really need is evidence of a rapture or a gathering up of God's people at the second coming event before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. So let's dive into Matthew 24 to see the book of Matthew 24 verse 3 we start getting the timeline that Jesus gives when they ask him. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them saying, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdoms. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of birth pains. It's interesting when they ask him, what is the sign and when will these things be? He starts telling them about earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against other kingdoms and all these horrible things that when we look at them, the way they have happened today and in the past, these are all the kinds of events that would easily inspire a fear in us of, wow, the end is soon because we have war or we have famine or whatever the reason is. However, before Yeshua goes into any of the meat regarding their question, he first tells them what the end is not. He says, if these things happen, they will take place. But this is not the end. Do not be deceived to think that these things are announcing the end of the world. It's quite amazing because he says these things are but the beginning of birth pains. So they do play a part, but they're not a marker of the end. They are birth pains. They're saying, yes, there is a future coming to us, but they're not saying that that future coming is close per se. And let's read on what he then says. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So now he tells us about the birth pains. He tells us then there will be tribulation. And even to the point of putting many of them to death, the people he's speaking to. And then he also says, and there will be falling away. There will be people who betray one another. So it's quite amazing because up to this point, he has not mentioned any rapture. That's I think we should note that right No, There's no saving from these tribulations. In fact, he's telling his disciples there will be tribulation and even putting you to death. And that is actually what happened to them. Most of the disciples of Christ were put to death. They did experience tribulation. They did experience betrayals. These things did occur. And there were certainly wars. There were certainly all these other things, other tribulations that happened. And these were times of birth pains that they were living in. What's also interesting is this this great falling away or this falling away that he mentioned happens as mentioned after the tribulation that he mentions. He says there will be tribulation and then there will be falling away. So we can conclude that the falling away People falling away from the faith happens when there is tribulation on the earth and they can't handle it. They don't have enough devotion to the cross, to God, to Yeshua, the Messiah, to say yes to him despite persecution. So that's what we learned. So on our timeline, we can now add three things. We can say in the beginning, God says there will be birth pains, not the end, but birth pains. Then he says we will there will be tribulation and death for believers. And then he says it will be a falling away after that. Another thing that's noteworthy that I think we should realize is that in this reading, Yeshua is telling them you will experience tribulation even unto death. So he is clearly not. God is clearly not against tribulation happening to believers to the point where he is pro- he promises them that that would never happen to them even though god surely loves would want things to go well with us the tribulations of this world we live in comes with the fact that we are living in the world and many of them will be inevitable to come upon some believers so i'm just saying this so that we understand that god is not promising to always save us from every trial and tribulation. So now let's read on. As we read on in verse 15 of Matthew 24, now we will learn about a different tribulation, a tribulation called the great tribulation. He says this, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For for the sake of the elect, those days 
will be cut short. So now Jesus talks about the great tribulation and he says that it will start when the abomination of desolation is revealed. In the book of Thessalonians, it's also further explained that this is with the appearance of the lawless one or the Antichrist setting up in the temple. So when this occurs, there will be great tribulation like the world has never seen before. And he says that for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So now we can go ahead and add that the great tribulation begins here in our timeline. What's kind of interesting, though, as far as Matthew 24 is concerned, at least, is that Yeshua has not mentioned anything about a rapture event yet. The pre-tribulation rapture position is that the rapture occurs before the great tribulation. But at least in this account, Yeshua has made no such mention. This is kind of surprising because if there is a rapture before the tribulation, that would be very important to mention by our Messiah. In fact, that's probably one of the most important things he would tell them is if, if when he's talking about a great tribulation, he would probably want to tell them that they won't need to worry about that because they won't be around for it yet. Since he is speaking to his disciples who are born again believers, right? And so he's not mentioning it here, which um, maybe it's an omission. However, it's important to take note of that as we move along. And it is interesting that he does say that for the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. That is, the days will come to an end quicker. The days of this great tribulation, because it will be so horrible. However, why would the days need to be cut short for the elect if the elect are supposed to be raptured before tribulation ever comes on the earth? It's something we need to think about. Some people do say that the elect mentioned here are not born again Christian believers, but rather that they are Jewish people or other people who only came around to accepting Christ in the midst of the tribulation itself. However, that is not explained here. And we need to wonder what does the word elect really mean? Does it mean does it mean Jew? In Colossians 3 verse 12 we read an example. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. No one would read Colossians chapter 3 which is for the elect and say well you know, I don't need to be kind. I don't need to be humble. I don't need to have any of these attributes because I'm not the elect. Right. So we can't go and say, you know, the elect refers to this or that person. So I it doesn't apply to me where we want. Right. The, so 
we can't just go and do insert that into the text. We need to go and say, does the text explicitly say that Jews will be here and Christians will be there? Jews will be raptured uh, post-tribulation. Christians will be raptured pre-tribulation by a natural reading of the text. Is that mentioned? We will try and search for that in this teaching, but we need to find that if we want that to be our position. Furthermore, we need to remember that we, even as if you realize, recognize yourself as a Christian, you are a part of Israel now. You are Israel. Uh, we are crafted into Israel. In Romans 11, verse 17, Paul tells us this. He says, if some of the wild branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, that is Israel, do not be arrogant towards the branches. And if you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. If we say that tribulation was designed for the Jews, that great tribulation, which has often been quoted in Christian circles, we are most certainly boasting against the branches, which are the Jews. And the scripture explicitly warns us to not do that as Paul just said, and we, because we are all part of Israel, we as believers become grafted into Israel, even if we were not Jews, just like Jews who are believers become are, are part of Israel as well. And so to say that this is for Israel and this is for the Gentiles, that distinction does not really exist in scripture because we're all supposed to be Israel. The only people Gentiles who are not Israel are people who are not following the Messiah. Never mind that tribulation couldn't have just been designed for the Jews or for for this or that group of people. I mean, wow, Messiah spoke to the disciples and told them they will suffer tribulation unto death and they will some of the strongest believers to walk this earth. How can we say that we don't need tribulation because we already accepted him? That's just would be crazy because tribulation is even though it's hard and uncomfortable, it edifies us and pressures us, pushes us to be more like Messiah, to bear good fruit. That's why he even went through hard times in the wilderness and throughout his life. So we can't be Israel or the elect only when it suits us. We are either always the chosen ones, the elect, or we are never the chosen ones or the elect. We are either always Israel or we are never Israel. There is no in between here. So now thus far, we have a timeline that looks like this. We first have the birth pains. Then we have the tribulation and death that was promised to the disciples. Then we have the falling away. Then we have this great tribulation that will come upon the the world with the reveal of the Antichrist. Now let's read on what happens thereafter. Matthew 24 verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So now we have more elements to add to our timeline. It is said now that after, immediately after, in fact, the great tribulation, there is this event of the signs in the heavens that will occur. And then we have the revealing, the appearance of the Messiah, Yeshua. And then we have trumpets with the gathering of the elect. That is the rapture. So it's interesting that we now see the description of a post-tribulation rapture event here, because we read about the gathering of the elect here for the first time. This kind of thing we call the rapture has only now been explained thus far. And this is in verse 31 already of Matthew 24. And nowhere before this has there been any kind of rapture event described. No kind of rapture event has certainly been described thus far before we came to the event of the Great Tribulation. So it is interesting for him to mention one rapture event, but not the other, if we are to hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. But nevertheless, we will continue searching throughout the rest of the scriptures for this pre-tribulation rapture event. So I think as we read this, you know, we also saw that there is this loud trumpet call and the, when the rapture occurs, the, there's this gathering of the elect that is described. And now, as we discussed earlier, it seems as though the elect simply means all believers and not just Jews. But let's, in our hope of really knowing, let's read further in 1 Thessalonians 4 about who it is that is at the second coming with the trumpets being raptured to be uh, with the Messiah. Is it just a certain portion of believers while the other portion was raptured at a different rapture event? Or are these all of them? Who is it? That's what we want to understand. We read this in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what he is trying to explain to us here is he's telling these people, don't worry about those who have died in your midst because and he's trying to explain to them what will happen to them and what will happen to us, those who are still alive. 
And he is, he, it's, it's important to keep in mind that the people he is speaking to, he describes them. He's saying, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Basically, we are born again believers. We are alive in Christ. We are not unbelievers. And he is saying to them, okay, so the people who died in your midst will be raised one day. And when they are raised, we will also thereafter be raised. And he also says that these things will all happen at a certain event. At the coming of Christ. And not just any coming, but the same coming that we just read about in Matthew 24. Because we read that the coming of Christ that happens after the great tribulation, immediately thereafter, is the one that comes where he comes with a blowing of trumpets, right? And the voice of an archangel. This is not some secret rapture event. This Everyone is going to know about this when it happens. And so he is, he is pointing to that event with the trumpets and everything. And he's saying, we who are alive will be raised at that event to be with him. We will be raptured there. And the people who died now will also be raised there. And so he is telling us exactly what the Messiah said in Matthew 24 about when the rapture occurs. But it's interesting that he does not make any mention of a pre-tribulation rapture event. This would have been an ideal time to explain to these people that there will be good news for you. You guys don't need to worry about anything. You know, we will be raptured before anything tribulation wise happens on the earth. And so then, you know, there will be a tribulation and then, you know, um, then thereafter, those who are dead will be raised and then we will meet them in the air. No, he's, he's not saying that. He's saying everyone will be raised after the tribulation, before at this sound of the trumpet coming of Christ event. Nevertheless, we will continue keeping an eye out for a pre-tribulation rapture event. Um, what we also need to really discuss while we are in Matthew 24 is preterism. Many people believe in what we call preterism, and that is that all of the prophecies that were given throughout the New Testament have already been fulfilled. And some preterists believe Christ already returned, that the Great Tribulation already happened and everything surrounding those events. Then there is also semi-preterists who believe that some of the prophecies were fulfilled. So when it comes to Matthew 24, it's important for us to understand what has been fulfilled and what has not been fulfilled yet. Because if we think that the Great Tribulation has already been fulfilled, or maybe even that the second coming of Christ has already happened and he's already here and we're already in maybe the millennium, that can have a big impact on our theology or eschatology about and how we prepare for the future. To summarize what each view believes, a partial preterist would believe that the Great Tribulation with the Antichrist has already been fulfilled and everything before that. 
and that all that is left is for Yeshua to come back. The complete preterist viewpoint, on the other hand, believes that everything, including the rapture of the elect, including the coming of the Messiah, including the Great Tribulation, has all been fulfilled already. What I would like to just say regarding this is that this belief comes oftentimes from an event that happened in 70 AD, where Nero was someone who seemed to be fulfilling many of the features of the Antichrist described in the scriptures, where he did go and take over the temple. He did go and set up uh, a defilement in the temple, etc. But is this satisfying? Is he satisfying the Antichrist? What we should know is that the Antichrist, as we know it, as we say, when we say the word the Antichrist, most of us are thinking about who is described within Matthew 24 or even in Revelation and in other places. But the scriptures say there are more than one Antichrist. The book of John, 1 John 2 verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Satan has from the resurrection, from when the Messiah resurrected, been continuously trying to implement and bring about the Antichrist system necessary to fulfill the raising of the Antichrist into power. And so Nero was one, likely one of these figures which the enemy tried to raise. Um, there are many such figures even since then throughout history of people who kind of fit a model of an Antichrist type. However, the question is, is was someone like Nero or many of the other Antichrists, were any of them the real Antichrist? And has the real Antichrist therefore then already came? And has the Great Tribulation therefore already occurred in that time? Because the Antichrist occurs is raised at the same time of when the Great Tribulation happens, as described in Matthew 24, like we just read earlier. So if we determine what the Great Tribulation is supposed to look like, we know what is the time of the Antichrist ruling because he's ruling in the Great Tribulation. So I'm going to give you four descriptors that the scripture gives us regarding what the Great Tribulation is supposed to look like. And we can easily then determine whether it has happened already or will happen still in the future. The first descriptor is that there will be tribulation like never before, as described in verse 21 of Matthew 24. So the question is, is has there ever been tribulation as bad as the tribulation that the world experienced in 70 AD? Well, we can easily see that in 70 AD, there were an estimated of one million deaths. Of, and that was that's horrible. That's horrific. However, there has certainly been greater tribulations upon the world since then. World War II, a very recent one alone, has had 70 to 85 million people. And, you know, we need to remember that this tribu great tribulation event 
is an event that the world will experience, not just believers, an experience that the world will never have before. So this was certainly then not that in terms of tribulation like never before, since we have had greater tribulation since 70 AD. Secondly, in the next verse of Matthew 24, verse 22, he says that the days of the world will be cut short for the sake of the elect. The days of that tribulation time period will be cut short. But what does it mean to be cut short? We just read a few verses later about what happens after that. And he says that immediately after the tribulation, the Son of Man appears. And, the, you know, there's all these signs in the heavens and all these things. So, therefore, that we know that when he says the days will be cut short, he literally means the days of the world will be cut short. Because after the tribulation, the Son of Man comes back and he t- gathers up his people and fire comes down upon the world and the world's days are cut short in fact so has that happened you know because it says that immediately after the tribulation the son of man appeared so we can't say that there is a tribulation great tribulation and then there is 2000 plus years and then the son of man appears because scripture clearly says in verse 29 of Matthew 24 that it is immediately after the tribulation that the sun and moon is darkened, the stars fall from heaven, the son of man appears. There's great trumpets and tremblings and things like that. Has that happened? The word immediately that's used in verse 29 is the word ethios, and it means in Greek directly, that is at once, as soon as, forthwith, immediately, shortly, straight away. It certainly does not mean 2000 years or something like that. So, if we want to hold to a view that the great tribulation has already occurred, it's been fulfilled, we're just waiting for him to come back now. It won't work because he has to come back immediately after the tribulation. Not to mention, Scripture also says, and that brings us to our fourth point, that Yeshua, the coming of the Son of Man, when he comes, he is going to be the person who will dethrone the lawless one. He is the one who will destroy him. He will not be destroyed by some other event or other person, but the the one who gets credit for destroying him is the Son of God himself. We read this in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, for example, Nero in 70 AD was certainly not killed with the Messiah coming with trumpets and everything at his coming and he being the one to kill the Antichrist. Right. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that these these are only four. We can there's more to discuss regarding the topic of preterism, of course. However, I hope that these four descriptors already shows you that there is no way that the great tribulation has already occurred. And while there have been antichrists that have closely resembled perhaps some of the characteristics, 
the Antichrist has to satisfy all of the characteristics and descriptors of the Antichrist, as well as being in the season of the Great Tribulation, which the scriptures describe in detail. Now, to return to the rapture and whether it's a post or pre-tribulation rapture, let's look at some more proofs for a post-tribulation rapture. And then thereafter, we're going to look at some proofs that are often used to try and prove a pre-tribulation rapture. And we will test all these things. In Luke chapter 21, we read further about this rapture that happens after a tribulation. And this is a parallel chapter of Matthew 24. We read the following about the great tribulation. Luke 21 verse 25. And there will be great signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, it's interesting because he talks about the distress on the world, this great tribulation kind of thing. And then he says, and then the son of man is revealed and he's writing to an audience of believers. Remember that when the Messiah is speaking here, he is speaking to people who believe. And he is telling them that when you see these things happen, these terrible things of tribulation, raise up your head for your redemption is drawing near. And then he describes that redemption as being the son of man coming. So why would he need to tell believers to raise up their head in the midst of tribulation for hope in the coming of the son of man? If they had to already be raptured before ever experiencing that tribulation. This poses a great challenge for the pre-tribulation view. In fact, as in all the other places we've looked at thus far, Luke 21 makes no mention of any kind of rapture event except for the one that happens after the times of distress. Furthermore, let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. 2 Thessalonians 2 is quite interesting because here he's writing to an audience of people that seem distressed regarding when is he coming back and how do we know we're not going to miss it? And he tells them, don't be distressed because there's a few things that need to happen. And he includes the mention of the lawless one being revealed, which we know happens in the great tribulation, the Antichrist figure being raised. So he's saying that, but why does he say that? And he says, and then after that is the second coming, which is basically their redemption. But 
he never mentions anything about being saved in terms of a pre-tribulation rapture from anything resembling a lawless one, a great tribulation or anything like that. This would have been a great time to tell a distressed audience, don't worry, you will be raptured before you know it. And you don't even have to worry about a lawless one or any kind of distress or any kind of tribulation or any kind of anything like that. This is the perfect time to mention it. However, it's never mentioned. All that is mentioned is for them to have their hope in that day, which we know as described in all the other scriptures is the coming of Christ. And he mentions it concerning the coming and being gathered to him. Notice how he mentions that as one event. It's the concerning the coming of the Lord and us being gathered to him. Just like in Matthew 24 and the book of Luke and where everywhere it's described as this event where he comes back with trumpets and then we are raptured up just as per our timeline. So up to this point, we still have not been able to find anything that we could put on our timeline of a rapture event also before the tribulation. We will talk about very common pre-tribulation rapture arguments, and we will test them all. The first one, escaping the tribulation and wrath. Luke 21 verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does it mean to escape all these things that are going to take place? Does it mean that God will allow us to be raptured before any tribulation takes place? Or does it mean that we will be able to escape tribulation even while still being on the earth? The argument is made by people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture that this means we will be escaping by means of a rapture. As with many things, the context is king and tells us what exactly God meant when he told us this. What does it mean to escape? Verse 27 says this, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He is not telling them that their redemption draws near before the second coming. He's saying until this redemption you have, this rapture, this gathering up, yes, indeed you have one, but it happens at the second coming. When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory. This is not what the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine teaches. It teaches that it would be a secret event that people won't know about. The opposite of the Son of Man coming in great glory with trumpets and the voice of an archangel and, and all the other times that he is described as coming in Scripture. So when he talks about you pray that you escape these things coming on the earth, he's not talking about praying that you will be raptured before these things happen. He's saying pray that you will be able to be kept safe on the earth from these things 
So, and then when you are there, you look up because you will feel pressure about because these things surround you. You look up because that's where your hope is when the Son of Man comes down with great glory. So that's the context. It definitely does not talk about the escape being a rapture before tribulation. The escape is the Father keeping us safe until he comes back to fetch his bride. This idea of escapism, to escape something, escape the tribulation, is really at the core of the pre-tribulation rapture belief. But let's see what scripture teaches regarding it and whether that core idea is biblical. Let's look at some examples in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as a popular story, which really tells us a lot about how God views tribulation and hardship. God allowed them to be thrown into the fire and he was there with them in the fire. That's what the scripture taught. But and they escaped the wrath. They did not. They escaped the death, if you will. That's what that picture is. God preserved them. God protected them in the fire. Another example is with Israel and Egypt. When the plagues were occurring on Egypt, Israel was still within Egypt. But God protected them from the plagues. That is like the wrath of God. Some people point to the story of, you know, Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah talking about how those events were different and teaches a pre-tribulation rapture concept. For example, while the world was flooded, he saved Noah. While Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed with fire, he saved Lot. Therefore, would he also not remove us from any tribulation by means of a pre-tribulation rapture. And it's true. God saved Noah from that flood. He saved Lot from that fire and brimstone that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. It, wouldn't it make sense for him to just save us too? Of course. But let's look at these stories in detail. And we see what it really teaches. When you think about the story of Noah, for example... Noah was told to build an ark. He built the ark. Probably we can speculate he received opposition for that. People probably didn't look nicely upon him. He probably lost some friends along the way. If he had any by then. And Noah had to get on an ark with a bunch of animals he had to leave his worldly possessions behind that he had. He probably had a house on earth. And he had to go in there and stay in that ark through a storm while the whole world was being swallowed up in water. Brothers and sisters, that's tribulation. That's hardship. That's not easy. Noah didn't have it easy. Yes, he was saved. Glory to God. He was saved from the wrath of God. And he was he, he, he and his family survived. But that wasn't doesn't mean it was without trial. It certainly was one of the most scary things to have gone through that flood, even though he did put his trust in the Father. Noah went through more distressing times than most of us would ever in our lives. He had tribulation. 
he was saved from wrath. Let's look at Lot. Lot, he was saved from the wrath of God. God warned him to leave and he was able to leave. But Lot, he lost his wife when she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Lot lost his home. So much so that after that they went to live in a cave. That sounds like tribulation to me. I don't know about you, but going to have to leave your home, losing your possessions, losing your wife, going to need to live in some cave somewhere. That sounds like tribulation, hardship, trial. But yes, he was saved from the wrath of God. All of these biblical examples we just discussed, all four of them, teaches us that God saves his people from his wrath. But he doesn't promise that we won't have trials along the way to salvation. So even if the wrath of God or the judgments of God on this world that are designed for this world are not for us and he preserves us from it, it doesn't mean we will not be affected by that. Because Noah was certainly affected. He had to do a lot and give a lot up because of the world messing up. Because of the world's judgment, Noah was definitely inconvenienced. Noah definitely had some tribulation along the way. He was affected by the world being flood. Who would not be? And on a secondary level, if it's not because of that us being affected in that way, it would be because believers are persecuted by the world because the world is going to be angry while the world is being judged. Think about how when Pharaoh, after Israel left, after the plagues, after everything, Pharaoh got so angry, he decided to grab his chariots and pursue Israel because of how hateful he was and angry he was because of God's judgment on his nation. And of course, through the Red Sea, God spared Israel. He took them through the sea and the wrath of God consumed Pharaoh. But nevertheless, Israel was persecuted. They had tribulation. They They weren't safe from experiencing tribulation. They were safe from the wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. People who hold the pre-tribulation rapture view often says that, yes, we are not supposed to have wrath, so therefore we can't have tribulation. But there, we fail to understand that there is a big difference between the wrath of God and experiencing tribulation. What's that difference, really? 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5 explains the difference. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here he talks about his people 
who will be afflicted by the nations, by the world, by various tribulations. And he's saying that he will repay those who afflict them with affliction. He will judge the world even for that. But he says, yes, he recognizes the fact that they are afflicted. He doesn't act like they will be saved from it by a pre-tribulation rapture. He does not make any mention of a pre-tribulation rapture. He says, in fact, that that your salvation, your hope, your how you will be, this will stop how this affliction and this tribulation will stop will be at the coming of the Lord Jesus with his mighty angels in flaming fire as he comes down to destroy the world. And we know from our other readings of scripture that that is the rapture event, the real gathering up of his people, which happens clearly after tribulation occurs. But God knows how to protect his people from tribulation. If the stories I just told you were not there to inspire hope, I don't know what they would do. God is always there for his people. And he says in 2 Peter 2 verse 7, If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He talks about how Lot was rescued. And he says that's the way we will be rescued. While Lot was rescued away from the trials of the earth, he was not taken up. Nor was Noah. Nor was Shidrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nor was anyone else raptured before they ever experienced any affliction or trial. No. Right? He's saying, I I can care for you. I am able to rescue you by protecting you in the midst of the fire. And we see that he calls it a good thing in Scripture. Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 3, Not only that, but we rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let's look at what Jesus taught on persecution and trial. John 15 verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Let's look at more. Romans 12 verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. John 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In fact, the very popular account of how the Messiah told his own disciple Peter to get behind him and called him Satan was because Peter wanted the Messiah to avoid tribulation. And it was actually the enemy speaking through Peter in that moment. Because we know that just before just uh, before Jesus was about to suffer many things, we read in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far from it be you, from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. Yeshua right there is saying, you trying to convince me to avoid the tribulation before me is you setting your mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. You like speaking like Satan would. Brothers and sisters, that's a hard rebuke. The hardest rebuke he ever gave any of his disciples. And it was over this topic of the desire to avoid tribulation for him. And of course, for the Messiah, that would mean that he would not even die for our sins. But look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you may say, but you know, that was Christ. He had to die for our sins. We don't need to suffer that kind of persecutions that he or his disciples may have suffered. But we need to understand that Yeshua told his disciples If you follow me, understand, you will die. He told Peter, Peter, if you follow me, they're going to carry you where you don't want to go. And they're going to put you on a cross and you're going to die. Like this was the narrative of of following the Messiah. Always he was telling them to pick up your cross and follow me. The consequence of picking up your cross in the first century means that you are about to die. Because that means you are going to be crucified. Like he was crucified. So we are not exempt from the call to be willing to suffer persecution or tribulation even unto death if it were necessary for the sake of his name. So let's look at some more arguments commonly used for the pre-tribulation rapture position. This one is a popular one. As it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. We read this in Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So as... Yeshua tells this parable of how it will be at the end with the coming of the Son of Man. He compares it to the days of Noah and how the people were unexpectedly and surprised when the flood actually did come. So will it be that when he comes, people will actually be surprised as well. Now, the argument, however, that's made by the pre-tribulation rapture position is that The people will be surprised at the end of the age because of the rapture. Because if there is a rapture, that would be unexpected. And there will be no tribulation to warn them yet. Because if there were to be tribulation, they would be uh, expecting the Son of Man to come back. So therefore, there must be a rapture before the tribulation. What he does is he correlates the coming of the water And sweeping away the people as what would be the unexpected event. However, we need to remember that the water coming on the earth points to the wrath of God. And yes, that will be unexpected. But he is not talking about the rapture being unexpected. He's talking about the coming being unexpected. 
He's saying when the Son of Man comes back, that will be unexpected because of the wrath. Because like the water was on the earth, now we know the next wrath, as we read earlier, will be the flaming fire that comes and consumes the world. So he's not, there's no mention of the rapture being the unexpected thing. The unexpected thing is he, him coming back and judging the world. Furthermore, I want to submit to you that, yes, even if there were to be great tribulation, the people would still be surprised when he did come back. He would, they, the people will be so wicked that they will, even though they suffer the great tribulation and see the signs of the times, they will not believe what is coming. That's the point. In fact, I would argue the opposite, that if there was a pre-tribulation rapture of everyone disappearing, and then we have great tribulation happen, and then we have the coming, people would be less surprised by his coming than if he there was no pre-tribulation rapture event. And so in this a parable, he is talking about the coming of the Son of Man and that that is what they will be surprised by. I actually think that this is more a argument for a post-tribulation rapture event only than having a pre-tribulation rapture event occur at all. Let's look at another argument, and that is the one of the thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the pre-tribulation rapture viewpoint on this verse is that the thief in the night explained here refers to a secret rapture event that occurs in the middle of the night where no one would know and like a thief. However, is that really going to be talking about a pre-tribulation rapture? Or does the thief in the night reference actually teach us about when the rapture occurs? Well, first we need to remember that we need to know the season because he's trying to tell us about the season when he talks about the thief in the night. Believe it or not. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, but you are children of the light. So we are of the light. We know, we're supposed to know the season. In fact, that's what he said in verse 1. Uh, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. So this entire Thief in the Night reference is to tell his people when to expect it. That yes, we don't know the day or the hour, of course not, but we do know the season if we live in the light and we know the season. But what is the season? You see, the thief in the night is actually in reference to something very much to do with when the rapture occurs. When he says concerning the seasons... That word seasons, we need to understand what it means. In the book of Genesis, we can look at this word because that's the first time it's mentioned. And we read it here. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So when God created the heavens and the earth and he set these lights in the sky... Like what we see, the sun and the moon and the other planets. 
He's saying that these were there made for seasons. And the word for seasons there isn't winter, fall, and summer, and spring. That's not what it's talking about. It's the word moed. And it means in the Hebrew, appointed time, or a festival, or a gathering. Literally, God is saying, I am putting the signs in the sky for you to help you determine when my appointed times will be. And it's no coincidence that when God started giving Israel his appointed times, he told them to calculate one of them very specifically regard with with how the moon is spotted, how that sign in the sky is spotted. You see, the Feast of Trumpets, one of the full feasts of our father, is the only feast that is very unpredictable in when it exactly occurs, because it starts only when the moon can be spotted. But you only know when the moon is spotted after the fact. So you cannot exactly predict the day or the hour. You can know the season, but not the day or the hour. And that's why Israel, for example, even today, when they were to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, they would celebrate it for two consecutive days because they don't really know which day it would fall on in advance. So when he talks about the day coming as a thief in the night, but not as a thief to those who live in the light, he is telling us that we ought to know the season, like he said in verse 1, you know the season, you know the appointed times, you know the festivals, and that's why you know the season. He's telling us when, around what time of the year, the coming will be. And he's saying, you know, you don't know the day or the hour, but you know the season. And we know that that time will be around the Feast of Trumpets. Is it a coincidence? It's called the Feast of Trumpets. And we read over and over about how he's coming back with a blowing of trumpets, with the sound of an archangel, all this great event. Brothers and sisters, when he talks about the thief in the night, he is talking about a post-tribulation rapture. Because the only time that we see the trumpet call and the coming with him of him with trumpets coming down and to judge the world and pour out the wrath and then gather up his people happens is in Matthew 24 after immediately after the great tribulation of those days. Not to mention, brothers and sisters, that if we understand the feasts of God prophetically, we would know the truth of the matter. Because the truth of the matter is, is that Every feast points to a very prophetic event. Passover was when he was, um, when our Passover lamb was crucified, Messiah. Unleavened bread, he was put in the grave. First fruits, he was raised. Fifty days later, we have the feast of Shavuot, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, also known as Pentecost. Then we have unfulfilled feast, the feast of trumpets, which is the next feast that is to be fulfilled, his coming. Then we have the day of atonement just thereafter, which is the judgment. And then we have Sukkot, the feast of tabernacles, where he comes and as a uh, uh, bridegroom, he comes to take his bride and there is the marriage supper of the lamb. So as you can see, Just as we quickly go over it, there's no 
two, there's not two comings. There's not two Feast of Trumpet events, which would need, be needed if he is going to be coming twice. But we know, and scripture tells us, that he is coming after the tribulation with the blowing of trumpets. And if there was a rapture event, which would be the most significant event, perhaps one of the most significant events, apart from the actual second coming, would that not have been mentioned at least in a natural reading of scripture or in one of or, or signified by one of the existing feast days? No, there is no feast days feast day that prophetically points to that event. So does that event exist? Is the question. Right, so let's move on and look at another uh, argument that's often used for the pre-tribulation rapture. And that is where there is the men in the field, one taken and one left. Matthew 24, verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So this is often used to say, look, there is people who will be in the field or they will be wherever. And then secretly, a secret rapture will come and take, snatch one of them away and the other one will stay. All right. And it says, stay awake because you don't know when the Lord is coming. Now, I think that we can all agree that this does speak about a rapture. It does speak about a gathering up. One person will be taken and if that is the righteous man and the other person will be left and that is the unrighteous man and the wrath of God will consume the unrighteous. So we can all agree on that. However, the question is, is does it explicitly teach us that there is a pre-tribulation secret rapture? Well, it teaches the opposite just because of where this is mentioned. It is mentioned at the end of Matthew 24, which we already went through Matthew 24 in the beginning of this teaching. And we found that there was no mention of any rapture except for the one that was happening at the coming with trumpets and, you know, this big event with the Lord coming back. So, that's just why he's saying, stay away, because you don't know when the Lord is coming. He's even in this very verse, saying, of the man being left and the one being taken, saying, this is all about the coming of the Lord. And he said it right after, in Matthew 24, right after explaining how the coming of the Lord will be. One with great trumpets, a great event, one that no one's going to miss. Certainly not a secret rapture. And perhaps most importantly, the event, the, the coming of the Lord, the, and described in Matthew 24, happens immediately after the tribulation, the great tribulation of those days. And so there is no way that this points to a secret pre-tribulation rapture. Let's look at another example. This one is the one where he talks about being kept from the hour of trial. This is one of the most popular arguments used for the pre-tribulation rapture. And he said this, Revelation 3 verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
So the question is, is when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, does he mean that you, he will come and take us away from the hour of trial, that will that tribulation time? And, you know, in other words, will he rapture us out to keep us from that? Or does he mean that he will keep us as in protect us, watch over us, guard us from the hour of trial? Well, this one is pretty simple because when we look at the word keep that's used there and we can easily see what he means. Because in the Greek, the word for keep is terio and it means to watch, guard, keep eye on or to note something. It's also used, for example, in John 17, verse 15, where Yeshua says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When the Messiah was praying this to the Father, he was not saying, uh, when he says, you know, I ask you to keep them from the evil one, that I ask you to rapture them away from the evil one. No, the evil one is around us and he's trying to entrap us, but he is praying for us to be able to uh, escape the entrapments of the devil, to be able to be kept from that uh, falling into that uh, temptation or whatever. And in the same way, because it means to guard, to note, to protect from the evil one, that is keep, it means the same in Revelation. He is really saying, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will protect you guard over you, watch you, take note of you in the hour of trial. Not to mention, just to drive this one home, he says in the beginning of this verse, he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, that's why I will keep you from the hour of trial. But why would we need to endure something if we never experience tribulation or trial? Why would we need to keep a word for being for enduring if we don't even need we, we wouldn't need endurance if we don't experience tribulation so the beginning of this verse already tells us that you guys have obviously needed they've already needed endurance because they've kept his words surrounding endurance so brothers and sisters this verse just cannot be used for this because it it's it's a shaky argument at best. Oh, but I'm not exactly done with this one yet because Revelation chapter 3 was written to one of the churches. There are seven churches in the book of Revelation that is written to. Why do we pick this one where he tells about, you know, keeping them or guarding, watching over them in the hour of trial? Why don't we pick one of the others? Because the church of Smyrna, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, they are promised tribulation. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Why do we pick that church of Philadelphia, why don't we pick the church of Smyrna? They were told to, they will have tribulation even unto death, but we don't talk about them. We don't use them as an argument because there would be no argument then, right? 
the fact is, brothers and sisters, if we want to use Revelation chapter 2 or 3 for the fact that we ought to escape tribulation, we, we can't pick what church we want to be. So, brothers and sisters, as we come to the conclusion of this, I think that there are some things that are getting very apparent. And that is that the the scriptural evidence, and I've really tried to look, I've really tried to be fair to in my evaluation of uh, giving these arguments a voice and testing them to scripture. There is no real argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. Some in the West have try to cling on to this hope of a pre-tribulation rapture because they believe that tribulation is not for them or tribulation is not for the Christian. But in that, they have been ignorant of what happens in, mo- in most of Christianity. What the West often forgets is that most of the world is already persecuting Christians and that the freedoms afforded in the West of being free from tribulation is a temporary thing. The U.S. State Department Office of International Religious Freedom reports that a majority of the global population, 83%, lives in places with high or very high religious restrictions, mostly targeting religious minorities. The ACN reports that half, half a billion people worldwide are persecuted for their faith, and of those, 65%, over 327 million people, are Christians. What about those Christians? If the West is so concerned with itself escaping tribulation and that we ought to not experience tribulation, God will save us, because isn't, isn't that a prideful position? What about the Christians in China? What about the Christians in India? What about the Christians all over the world? Most of the Christianity in the world that suffers terrible persecution and tribulation. If we were to take a message of a pre-tribulation rapture to them, brothers and sisters, to just be frank, they would laugh at us as the waste. They would say, what are you kidding me? You're trying to tell me that I'm not supposed to have tribulation? You, you who are comfortable, do you know what I have gone through? And you're saying that there's no tribulation for God's people? Do you even know the Father is what they would tell you? I want to read you a story from an incredibly famous and honored missionary, Corey Ten Boom. Please listen to this story. My sister Betsy and I were in a Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück because we committed the crime of loving Jews. 700 of us from Holland, France, Russia, Poland and Belgium were herded into a room built for 200. And as far as I knew, Betsy and I were the only two representatives of heaven in that room. Betsy and I, in the concentration camp, prayed that God would heal Betsy who was so weak and sick. Yes, the Lord will heal me, Betsy said with confidence. She died the next day, and I could not understand it. They laid her thin body on the concrete floor, along with all the other corpses of women who died that day. It was hard for me to understand, to believe that a God, that God had a purpose for all that. Yet because of Betsy's death today, I am traveling all over the world, telling the people about Jesus. There are some among us teaching there will be no tribulation. 
that the Christians will be able to escape all this. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on across the world. I have been in countries where the saints were already suffering terrible persecution. In China, the Christians were told, Don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be translated, raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop from China say, sadly, We have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution, rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when tribulation comes, to stand and not faint. Just like we can look at the whole world and see that the Messiah has not come back yet because of the state of the world. Similarly, we can just look at the persecuted Christians all around the world in their tribulation to be able to say that the pre-tribulation rapture is falsehood. But scripture also backs that statement up. And brothers and sisters, what I just read to you was not me. That was a missionary who has suffered persecutions more than any of us would likely ever suffer, who said that regarding this doctrine. Just like we have people today who are promised a life of prosperity in Christ when they accept Him and that they will have no, nothing ever happen to them that's bad ever again. And then when something does happen to them, they quickly fall away because they were lied to regarding what it's supposed to look like. Similarly, if we tell people that they don't need to worry because they will never suffer tribulation or even great tribulation, when that tribulation comes, they will, some of them will fall away. And that's maybe why the Bible talks about a great falling away, because it's partly to do with the people not being prepared, because their expectations aren't in line with what the scripture teaches regarding the coming times of hardship. As I end this off, I think we can all agree that regardless of when he's coming back or when we will be raptured, we all agree that he will come back. That is the hope and that is the unity that we have in him. So this is not something to cause division about, but it is important. So how do we prepare? Keeping the feast days as we mentioned earlier, is a good point of departure because the feast days every year is a reminder of the coming unfulfilled full feasts, seasons that will come upon the earth. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Sukkot. And each of these feasts every year annually when we celebrate them, we are commanded to repent, commanded to even fast on the Day of Atonement. We're commanded to rid our lives of sin, and keep our mind focused on what is still to come. That is the preparation method the scripture gives amongst other things. And I encourage you, if you've listened to this video and you feel, wow, I don't know if I'm ready to get on your knees and repent before the Lord for any of your sins, to call on his name, put your hope in him because he is salvation. This world will pass away. This storm will come. And like Noah told these people, a storm is coming, get ready, I'm telling you the same. Except back then the storm was water, the next storm will be a storm of fire. And if you want to be saved from God's wrath, you need to be able, willing, to accept Him, to die to yourself, 
and to run for his kingdom with everything that you have. If you've never heard about Jesus or if you want to follow him, go to our website on riseonfire.com and contact us and we will help you along the way. I hope that this teaching has blessed you and given you some things in the very least to think about as we wrestle with the scriptures through these important topics. Please share this video, like this video, and thank you for joining this teaching. Blessings and shalom. If this video has blessed you, consider partnering with the ministry to help us reach the nations with the gospel. Uh